All right, the rest of us, we can turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, and specifically Colossians chapter 3. Uh, that's where we have uh, uh, begun uh, just recently. Um, we got through chapter 2, praise the Lord. And we're moving into um, Colossians 3. We identified, uh, if you will, 12 very elementary principles uh, for the believers. Uh, there's a lot of uh, detail that we're going to go through as we look at it. Went through them very briefly and, and just to kind of, if you will, identify it, kind of get a bit of an outline of how we're going to approach this chapter. Uh, but again, the whole concept behind this is, if you will, the actualization of that thought process of keeping Christ as preeminent. If Christ is preeminent, this is how we behave. This is what we do. And there is a lot of that in the scriptures. You will find when, uh, specifically a lot of it in the Pauline epistles where there may be lists or there might be, you know, chapters devoted to, uh, certain like subjects or something of that nature. So you take Ephesians 4 as an example. Talks a lot about communication, how we deal with each other, uh, unity, things of that nature. Uh, going through that whole process that if we're going to endeavor to keep that bond of peace, then this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to behave. We're not going to be uh, lying one to the other. We're not going to be angry and sinning. We're not going to do certain things. We're going to say certain, uh, uh, if you will, um, say things in a certain way and, and so on and so forth. But here in Colossians 3, we, we, we have a lot that is, again, focusing on that preeminence of Christ, who he is. And if that is the case, this is going to be the behavior that will follow through. You know, the Bible talks a lot about walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. What we have here is the walk of the spirit, you know, walking in the spirit. This is, this is the path that we take. This is the, uh, if you will, the, the Christian gate, if you will, as we go through, uh, this life, how we are, are, are exercising what God has instructed us to do. And we find in verse one where he says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Now, this is the very first one that we're talking about in this outline. And that is the affections of the heart. And we know that our heart is easily affected by various different things. So we have to purpose, if you will, if you see this here as a commandment, we are purposing to set our affections on what is the right type of effect in our lives. If we just kind of let anything affect us, and there are those individuals that do that, then you're going to lead a very, uh, if you will, topsy-turvy life. You're going to be up and down and all over the place. And uh, as, you know, sometimes, you know, I refer to them as, and you, you just, I don't know if this is a term. I've heard it before. I've heard... Actual, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists use it talking about individuals being what they refer to as the emotional hairball. You know, just, they're, they're just a mat of whatever and you can't sort it out or figure out what's going on and it's just, it's a mess. And the problem is, is because they're, uh, they're actually allowing other people to have an effect on them. 
There are, there, we, we get a choice. Somebody says something to you, you don't have to let it affect you. You're like, but, but it, it's going to. Well, uh, yeah, you might get angry at first. Put it in check. That's the whole bringing your thoughts into captivity. Somebody says something, you want to punch them in the face? Resist. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we, we as believers, we're called to do, and, and there's sometimes we do have to suffer ourselves to be defrauded, and you know what we do? We let God handle it. As an example, take, take a look at Moses' life. I mean, honestly, I, I, this is just my thought process, and maybe I'm wrong, and the Lord will correct me when I get to heaven, but I, I'm pretty convinced that if the Lord, you know, that if Moses went to the Lord and said, okay, I want to fry these guys, God would have gone, and it would have been over with. But God, you know, knew Moses, knew who he was. That's why he chose Moses. Moses was meek. Took him a little bit to learn that lesson. But he that was what he did. Moses, and we see the life of Moses, and we see how he was affected by the things of God, the spiritual things. We also see how sometimes those that he was around affected him. Got upset, struck the rock, missed out on the promised land. One point in time, he goes to God and says, you know what, you're right, go ahead, kill them all. (laughs) You're like, wow, okay, you know. But as we look at this here, we we, we find that there's there's this pattern, and we talked about it. We talked about, again, how Paul sets up with this mind and this thought process of if we're, you know, again, saved, born-again children of God, if, you know, as it says there, if you're risen with Christ, and that's what he's talking about, salvation, then we are going to seek something that is above. We're not going to seek things of this world. Specifically, in that mindset, in that preeminent mindset, the first thing we do is we look at the affections of the heart. We look at the affections of the heart. Uh, take a look at uh, Galatians chapter 5. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Let's take a look at a couple of passages here. In Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5. Uh, you have uh, where he starts going through the, if you will, the works of the flesh. And he starts talking about those in verse 19, and none of those are good. And he says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, in case yours didn't get included in there. He says, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in the time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, look, this is what you used to do. We're going to, you need to change. These are things that are not acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. And and you go through, and some of them, I mean, maybe like, well, duh, murderers. Okay. But you notice murderers is thrown in there with things of uh, emulations. You know what that's all about? Faking it. Faking it. Pretending that you're something that you're not. That's a pride issue. It's a pride issue. What else is you see in there? Variance. Variance. 
Meaning something is not adding up. There's something in your life that just doesn't seem to, to, to if you will, uh, come to the right calculation. You know, w- when I was working in the uh, accounts receivable uh, part of uh, one of uh, one of our pharmacies, I, there was times I'd go into an account and there was a variance. I'm like, what is going on? You know, why 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 is why is there this outstanding balance? Why is this credit here? Why is this? Why is that? And you got to go through and try to balance all the things and go through what they call a reconciliation process. Isn't it interesting how God is, 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 is part mathematician, part accountant, part lawyer, part, I mean, you know, part librarian. I mean, all of these things, you, you see who God is and all the stuff that, that's in the world today. Yeah. Man is without excuse. He's talking about variance here. There's something in your life that does not equate to doing what God's will is. By the way, he throws that in there with murder. This is the mind of God. Envyings. He throws that in there. Now, jealousy and envy are two different things. You know, we've talked about this before. God is a jealous God. His name is jealous. Jealousy is not a bad thing. As long as you're not doing something that's sinful in it. Envying, however, God doesn't like. Because envying is a condition of the heart. It's a problem. Because envying leads to lust. And what we find here is through all of these things, he throws them all together and he says, this is what your flesh does. This is what your flesh does. And your flesh, by the way, is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's not going to inherit eternal life. The flesh that we have right now is not going to last. It, it, it fails. Believe me. 2023 has shown me flesh fails. 2024 is not looking that bright either right now. <laughs> Got four more tests and scans coming up and all sorts of stuff and, and you know, all those things. And they're like, well, we want to make sure and check sure that you, did, you haven't had a stroke or something. And I'm sitting there going, well, don't you think maybe we'd want to do that a little bit sooner? But okay, you know, we're going to schedule that out in January, I guess. But whatever. Flesh fails. Flesh fails. Um, it, it, it's corrupted. Those things aren't going to inherit. That's why we need a new body. That's why we need the body's redemption. That's what he talks about in the book of Ephesians. It's necessary. It's necessary. Man, I tell you this, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when, when this flesh isn't cumbersome anymore. When there is no death. That's a hard thing. Our, our family's kind of going through that right now with one of our dogs, you know. Merry Christmas right after this service. I got to go home and we're going to have to have our dog put down. You know, that's the flesh, by the way. It's corrupt. And, 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 and let's be clear here. Let's not go back and blame Adam about this. Okay. We all each have our own culpability in this. We've each sinned. 
we had a choice and we chose sin. And when we choose sin, we're choosing opposite of God. So we see here, as he goes through all of these things in verse 22, he says, but, and I like this, because then he brings about the spiritual things. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. There's no law restricting you in that. There's no law in restricting how much you love the brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no, 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 no restriction on your joy or your peace that you can have in your life. There's no restrictions upon that. There's, no, there's nothing that, that's going to limit you. You can abound in that. And Jesus Christ said that you should because he gives you a life that is more abundant. But what we find here is we find something that we're supposed to be living in, that we're supposed to be, if you will, having that fruit of the Spirit demonstrated. He demonstrates it to us. We turn around and demonstrate it to others and demonstrate it to a world that it needs it, lost and dying world that needs salvation, and to brothers and sisters in Christ that need encouragement, comfort, and, and, and edification along the way. But, but, but here, here in verse 24, I want you to see this in, in Galatians 5. He says, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So the idea that, that Paul is getting at here, as well as in Colossians, is that at some point in time, you have to change what is affecting you. If the things of the flesh are the only things that are affecting your life, momentary pleasures, then that's all you're going to ever have. You'll, you'll never experience those things of eternal joy, eternal life, things like that, being a person that's unsaved. But a person that is saved takes those things in a daily basis, hourly basis, maybe it's a minute-by-minute basis, however it be, but going back to the cross and realizing that's where they are, I'm leaving them there. I'm not going to have that lust anymore. I'm not going to have that affection anymore. I'm not going to let that sin dominate my life. This is the thought process. So if we begin to set our affections on things above, spiritual things, there's going to be a direct spiritual result as we see here. If we set our, uh, if you will, affections on things that are lustful and, and of the flesh, we find that all of those things that he just listed have consequences, don't they? Every last one of those things in that list, by the way, brings about division. It separates. Because that's what sin does. Sin is a separator. Sin separated man and God. Sin separates relations in families, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin does that because that's what sin is, if you will, excels at. But if we make a choice that we're going to choose Christ, then we crucify it. We crucify our flesh. And along with its affections, what affects our flesh? 
Sometimes that happens. Something, somebody says something, somebody does something. And immediately, we, if you will, have a fleshly response, don't we? Sometimes it's words that come out of our mouth. Sometimes it's physical action, whatever it may be. People that have, you know, issues with anger that aren't using it correctly, they respond in a very certain way. People that are, if you will, uh, very um, uh, lack self-confidence and and uh, and struggle with who they are and things of like that. People say things and send them send them into despondency, send them into uh, a, um, a depression of which they have a difficult time coming out. This is why we have to be careful with our words. And if we're setting the, 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 our affections on things above, what's in our heart is going to come out of our mouth, as Christ says. So if the affections of God are what's in our heart, that's what's going to come out of our mouth to edify other believers. That's how we go about this process. Turn over to uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 6, I want you to take a look here at uh, verse 19. Very familiar passage. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What is it that you treasure in life? What is it that you would actively seek for? I, I, I still have a very childlike mentality when it comes to that word treasure. You know, back when you're a kid, they, they kind of, if you will, romanticize the life of a pirate. I mean, they, they, they kind of paint it as this, you know, oh, it's kind of a cool thing. And, you know, and kids grow up and, oh, I want to be a pirate. Uh, it's not that great of a lifestyle, okay? I mean, uh, it, 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 just go, just go ask the people over in Somalia where that's the number one employment, you know, job is pirate. Uh, it doesn't end well for a lot of them, uh, especially when they pick the wrong boat. Uh, things go, can go wrong very quickly. But, but again, you know, pirates were not very nice people. You know, and, and then nowadays, you know, they, they're like, well, pirate is such a derogatory term. We should probably call them what they used to call them, privateers. No, oh, come on. They're pirates. Privateer is just a mercenary. It's a gun for hire, a boat for hire, if you will. It's like, come on. And people try to just sugarcoat all of that. But, but again, you know, it, it, it all comes back to that whole thing about, you know, the, the treasures and the pirates seeking the treasure or getting the treasure and then hiding the treasure and so on and so forth. And, 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 and all of this stuff, you know, back in the day, I remember all of those. Look, here's what it comes down to. That treasure, you know, was painted as something that was valuable, whether it was gold, whether it was, uh, 
uh, gems or w- whatever it was. It was something that was there, all the little toys that had the pirates. You'd open up the little treasure chest inside would be all these things. Uh, well, here's what it comes down to. What do we really consider valuable in this life? Because that's what treasure is. Something of value. Something that is agreed upon value. Now, value can, value can vary. What's, you know, what, what, what's worth it to, to one person may not be worth it to another person. You know, for, for one person, spending $8 on a Starbucks coffee is like, oh, that, you know, it's worth it. To another person, they're like, uh, why, why would I do that when I can go down to, you know, uh, the AMPM and get coffee for, for a dollar? You know, something of that nature. Or I can come to church and I get it for free. <laughs> I mean, something of that nature. I mean, the, the thought process, right? But treasure is something that has value that everybody recognizes. And God says, there is stuff that is valuable, but it's just not here on this earth because it's going to pass away. It's going to rot. It's going to corrupt. All of it does. All of it does. We face that in this life. I mean, it's it's a law of, of thermodynamics. If you're going back to school, jump down to verse 33 here and, and see where he says this. You know, he's talking now again, just to get us to understand this. He's talking to Jews at this point in time. Matthew is a is a book that portrays Jesus Christ as king, because you go through his lineage that's listed before the record of his birth, and we see that it is a royal line from which he descends. Over in Matthew, or excuse me, over in the book of Luke, it comes from Mary's line, and it descends from Nathan, not from Solomon, showing very clearly that he is man which is important. But here in Matthew, it portrays king. He's talking about giving this kingdom to the nation of Israel, which he's going to do. He's talking about some things that need to get taken care of before that is done. He's going through uh, chapter 5, what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, bleeds into chapter 6 here, talking about it, and if you will, gives some guidelines about what that kingdom is and how that kingdom is going to operate. Who gets into that kingdom? There's a lot of things that he talks about with that specific physical kingdom. But the mindset of the nation of Israel was, we want the kingdom without God. That's the Pharisees' mindset. But here, very clearly, God paints a different picture. He's saying, you need God. You need a Savior first to deal with the sin issue. Then we'll talk about that physical issue of the kingdom. Because look at what he says here in verse 33. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What is he talking about? He's talking about the physical stuff. He's saying, if you prioritize the spiritual stuff, God will handle the physical stuff. But what do we do? We prioritize the physical stuff and think, well, God will handle the spiritual stuff. And that's not how God operates. He makes it clear right here. This is what he does. He cares for us in such a way. 
I heard something the other day. Some guy was talking about time. He was talking about time, and he was talking about it in lines of, you know, with employees and, and things like that, and, and, and training, and how training needs to be a priority. And one of the things that he specifically said is, he said, a lot of times what he hears is he hears this saying of, well, I, we just don't have time to train people. Now, if you've ever been in business, you've heard that. You've heard that. What do they call it? On-the-job training. No, no, no. Let's just call it what it is. You, you, you just you just threw them into the fire. That is, if you will, a baptism of fire. <laughs> you know, and, and and then and then they wonder why the employee and the, the isn't performing the way that he's he or she is supposed to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it comes down to training comes down to training. I remember having conversations one time uh, about an employee in a management meeting, and they were talking about having to 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 to, to possibly fire this person. And and I just, you know, she wasn't my employee, but I I saw the handwriting on the wall. I knew exactly what was going on, and I just chimed in and I said, "Look, you guys, you know, obviously you guys are going to do whatever you're going to do, but from my perspective as a manager." is that if uh, we're having to fire this employee, we've failed as managers. We failed. Not her. We did. And they're kind of like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Did we train her the way she's supposed to? The way, the way she's supposed to work? The way she's supposed to operate? Does she know her job? Because everything that I'm seeing shows she doesn't know her job. Whose fault is that? It's ours. Anyways, this guy was talking about, you know, training and he says, you know, training needs to be, to be a, a major issue, a major issue with, uh, with management, with, uh, with companies. And one of the things he said is, yeah, people will say, well, we just don't have the time to train. And, and he says, look, you need to stop saying, I don't have time or I need to make time or something of that nature. He said, because number one, we all have time. We can't physically manufacture time or extend. I can't just give, you know, a, a, an extra hour to somebody or an extra half hour in the day. Somebody's struggling and saying, hey, you know, I, I just can't get all this done. Oh, okay. Well, well, well here you go. Here's an, here, here's an extra 24 hours to get this job done. I, I can't do that. That's not in my power. So he said what it comes down to is it comes down to the prioritization. He said what we need to really say is what we really mean. I don't have time means it's not a priority. I've had people say, well, I don't have time for church. No, let's change your words. Church is not a priority. I don't have time to read my Bible. No, Bible reading is not a priority. I don't have time to pray. Prayer is not a priority. So this is what God's talking about. He's saying, seek ye first. What is first? It's a prioritization. That word is about prioritization. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, 
Now, the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the physical, literal, 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, where Israel is at the top, the top nation, and what's what Israel's been wanting for, uh, you know, just desiring, and uh, uh, what God has promised to them. But before they can do that, the kingdom of God is the spiritual stuff. They've got to get a hold of that. Because you can't have the kingdom of heaven unless the kingdom of God comes along. And here's the problem. They're saying, he's saying, but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Isn't that exactly what Paul said? They went about to establish their own righteousness. If you will, disregarding God's, seek his righteousness. Not our righteousness. Not lauding of ourselves, not being pride, nothing of that nature. He says, these are the things that you seek first. You seek the spiritual things of God, and you seek what he says is right. His will, if you will. Those are the things that we go about seeking. That's the first priority in our life. It comes before anything else. God handles the rest. God handles the rest. I've seen it before, and I've had people say things, and I've heard people say things. I've had pastor friends tell me about situations and things that go on in their churches and so on and so forth. And, and I'll tell you this, sometimes there will be uh, something going on, and, and, and a, 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 uh, a, a mom or a dad will say something of the nature of, um, you know, well, I'm just going to, uh, uh, you know, take some time, uh, you know, just, just for my family. And what they do is they prioritize the family over God. And this is a dangerous thing to do. Because here's what's going to happen. If you prioritize the family over God and say, I don't necessarily have time to deal and do spiritual things, for, you know, for God, the way that he asks me to do, then you are not going to have time for your family. That time you spend is going to be time in futility. You'll be struggling. Now, if you spend time with God and your family is there with you, that is quality family time. That's the way it's supposed to be. How do we know that? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and read through that. He makes it really clear about how we're supposed to approach our family life. He makes it very clear. Written on our, our doorposts, talked about at the dinner table. All of these things, so that it is constantly being reinforced who God is, why God's important, why the Bible is important, why doing the right thing is according to God is important. All of those things. And, and here he's telling the nation of Israel, you've got to set that first as your priority. Worrying about the kingdom isn't going to do it. Worrying about whether God, or being concerned, if you will, about whether God's pleased with your actions, that's the priority. God will take care of the rest. Why? Because it's God's promises. It's God's promises. Go back to Colossians and Colossians 3. And as he continues to talk here in Colossians 3, he, he, he again reminds 
And he says in verse 3, he says, for you're dead. For you're dead. And your life is hid with Christ and God. Now, now, what is this deadness talking about? He's talking about, if you will, what we just saw over there in Galatians, about crucified flesh. The affections being crucified. Crucifixion was a death. It was a form of death. Take a look at another couple of passages. Go over to Romans, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, where, you know, again, <clears throat> he starts off, you know, talking about, you know, again, he's writing to believers. And in, in, in the very first part of the Romans chapter 6, the very first verse, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In verse 2, he says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That's the response that we have to sin. Dead. Sin needs to be treated like the poison it is. If all of a sudden your uh, job or where, whatever, you know, leads you to go to a certain city over in Michigan by the name of Flint, do you think maybe you'd have some concerns? You couldn't drink their water. That would be a problem because you kind of need that to live. So, so again, the, the, the mindset is this, is that we, we, you would be like, no, I, I'll move somewhere else other than that town. You would avoid it. I mean, how many of us would want to go and say, hey, we've got a bunch of great farmland that we want to, or not farmland or, or, uh, maybe it's farmland, maybe it's, you know, some great property. You guys you know, can get each 20 acres or something like that. You, the, the only thing is, is it butts up right up against the Hanford nuclear plant. And, and maybe a couple of those lots are right by where they're, they, 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 they buried some of that stuff that's leaking currently. None of us would do that. That's how we have to treat sin. We have to be dead to it. We have to be dead to it. Things that are dead don't respond to any stimulus. They don't respond to any affection or attempt of affection. That's how we have to view, and if you will, put our mindset is, is that when sin comes along, you just go, I'm dead to it. I'm not even going to think about it. Not even going to let it affect me. Not going to have, let it have any power or dominion over me. Nothing. Take a look at what he says in verse 11. Jump down here a little bit further in verse 11 of the same uh, chapter, uh, Romans 6. He says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, what's the concept here? Sin comes along. We're a possum. Play dead. 
play dead. Possums, I mean, they, they honestly, everything about them, when they do that, they appear dead. They look like roadkill. Before they're ever hit by a car. That's how you need to respond. Nothing's going to affect you. There are some creatures that God made that play dead really well up to the point of where they'll even let things start eating them and biting them. But here we are, when it comes to sin, a lot of times we react very, very actively towards the stimulus, towards what is out there, towards its affections on us. We shouldn't. The only thing that we should be alive unto is Jesus Christ. And again, this should be the Christian mindset, the Christian mantra, if you will, where we say, I am alive unto God. I am alive unto Christ. What he does is what affects me. It's what motivates me. It's what rules my life. Because in verse 12, he says, let sin therefore, uh, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You know, that verse right there has got to drive a Calvinist crazy. Why? Because it says, let not. What does that mean? It means you've got a choice. You know what Calvinism is? Calvinism believes that, 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 that God ordains everything up to and including sin. Well, that makes God the author of sin, and we know that's not true. But here he says, let not. What does that mean? It means, again, you've got a choice of what you're going to allow. What you're going to allow. And this is great. This is not like the voting process here in the United States of America, where sometimes you get a president you don't want. You get a choice. There doesn't even have to be a vote about it. You can just say, no. And he says it right here, why he says that you should obey the lust thereof. Because if it's raining over you, you're going to obey it because that's what you want. That's what you want. He says in verse 13, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So, so here, here, here comes an important principle that Paul is reiterating to multiple churches. You don't have to sin. You have a choice. You can say no. He tells the Corinthian church, he says, God made a way for you to escape it. All of it. Every temptation. There isn't one that you can't escape. And he makes it clear here where he's saying, look, you're, it comes down to this. To whom are you going to allow to be the authority in your life. Who are we going to allow to be the authority? You know, there's, there's always that, if you will, that, that kind of, uh, joke that goes around where the, 
they, you know, the rebel teenager is like, oh, I'm sick and tired of mom and dad's rules. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of them telling me what to do. I'm tired of, you know, them ruling over me and being my authority. I'm just going to go live my own life. I'm going to go join the Marine Corps. They tell you what to do. Everything. When to eat. When to get rid of what you ate. All of it. When to sleep. How long to sleep. When to run. When to walk. When to pack something. When not. When to fire. When not. I mean, all of these things. All They tell you what to do. You're never going to escape authority because you're going to have to have an authority over your life. That's the way that God made man. God did not make man to be free from authority. He made man to be subject to an authority. And he made God, or made man to be subject unto God himself. Dependent upon him. Who do you think watered the garden? God did. Who do you think makes everything grow? God does. Who do you think is the one that provides the food? God. Because God can make it all stop at any point in time. But he makes it clear here, he says, who are you going to submit to? Either you're going, and, and this is the biggest issue. The real reason that people have sin problems in their life is because they're submitted to sin and they're failing to yield themselves unto God. That's the struggle. That's where that happens. Take a look at another passage here. Go over to 2 Timothy. We'll end with this, 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter, uh, chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two, verse eleven says, is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Dead to sin, living for Christ. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we, if we deny him, he will also deny us. That doesn't mean he's going to deny us salvation. But what we begin to see here is we begin to see this pattern where he says that we have to make a choice of if. If we be dead with him, we shall live, we shall also live with him. It's an if. You have a choice whether or not you're going to be dead to sin. You have a choice of whether or not you're going to live with Jesus Christ. It's all about a decision and a choice. And it all depends on what's being, you know, what's affecting you. Because it's going to affect your life. In verse 4, over there in Colossians chapter 3, he starts going into that subject of life. And interestingly, he does all of that, and and we're really kind of shooting ahead to the second part, or the second uh, principle in verse 5 over there in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, mortify. Mortify, therefore, your members. You've got to consider it dead. On a day-to-day basis, you have to kill that lust. You've got to eliminate it from your life. This is the path that God has set for us. These are the principles that we begin to, 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 to take. Because, again, if we have this understanding of 
I'm dead unto sin, but alive unto Christ, Christ then becomes the preeminent. Christ is the one that is ruling and reigning in your life. Christ is the one to whom you become obedient. Christ is the one to whom you're yielded. Over and over and over again, we see this pattern being set up throughout Scripture where it's God is the one to whom we yield. We're the creature. He's the creator. We'll never rise above him. And when we have the concept of that he is that great God, then we have the understanding of the blessings that we receive from him realizing who he is. The greatest blessing of all that we would have eternal life, not eternal torment and punishment. That is such a great thing for us as believers to take and to use in our mindset and our use in the day-to-day life as we make decisions, as we make choices, as we decide what it is we're going to do. But it all starts with how is our heart going to be affected? Are we going to let sin affect it? Are we going to let God affect it? Which one? Those are our choices. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. Thank you again for an opportunity, Lord, to just uh, hear from your word and again see exactly what you want us to do. I pray, Lord, that we would just have this uh, desire to please you and to honor you. And Lord, again, I just thank you for putting all of this in your word to give us the encouragement to show us that we don't have to make those choices, that we can choose to live for you who gave us such great gifts. Again, Lord, I just pray you continue to be with us for the 11 o'clock hour. Speak to our hearts. Lord, may they be prepared and ready to receive what you have for us. And this I ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.